fear, to some extent, is what keeps us alive. But how has it shaped the world around us today? Whether it's fear of God or witches, of illness or a dictatorship, Robert Peckham says the fears we have today are rooted in past events. His new book, Fear, an Alternative History of the World, looks at the role the emotion has played across major events in history, from the Black Death in the 14th century to the French Revolution and the recent COVID-19 pandemic. Robert Peckham is an historian of epidemics and pandemics and was Professor of History at the University of Hong Kong at the time China tightened its control over the region in 2019. He is also the founder of Open Cube. This is an organisation that promotes the arts, science and technology for health. He's been a visiting scholar at New York University and held fellowships at Cambridge and Oxford. He's with us from New York. Hello, Robert. Hello. Good to speak with you today. It's personal, individual and collective fear. And interestingly, you started writing this book while working at the University of Hong Kong. You saw the impact of fear across the campus after the extradition rules changed, fear in terms of what dissent could mean. Could you talk a little bit more about what was happening uh, and uh, was this part of writing the book? Well, it was certainly a very important backdrop to writing the book. Um, One of the interests that, that I have is the ways in which fear is used as a tool of power, and that is often a coercive tool. Um, and the ways in which different fears become conflated. So in the case of China, and particularly Hong Kong, was the ways in which the fears of the epidemic became conflated with all kinds of political fears. And it's the ways in which particularly the pandemic uh, measures that were taken there, pretty draconian measures, were used as a tool for suppressing the pro-democracy protests that were happening from 2019. So that was certainly an important context I suppose what I'm interested in is the ways in which our personal fears become entangled in these collective political, geopolitical fears. And I begin the book, actually, uh, with my own experience in Afghanistan. This was in the late 1980s when the Soviet Union still occupied Afghanistan. And I experienced there a terror attack. And it's really thinking through my own experience in relation to this incredibly complex history, um, you know, of the Asian subcontinent and particularly this part of sub, uh, Afghanistan, um, that got me interested in the intersections um, that are a large part of my history of fear. Do you want to pick up then with your experience in Jalalabad and what you experienced personally then, but also what you observed and reflected on later? Yeah, so. Um, I was uh, attending a funeral of a very well-known Pakistani um, politician um, who was buried in Jalalabad in in, um, northeastern Afghanistan. And while we were attending the funeral, there was a terrorist bomb attack um, and panic ensued. And, And really what interested me there was the ways in which my own experience of panic um, related to this sort of bigger historical uh, context that was shaping conflict in this part of the world. Also, um, I'm interested in the ways in which panic is both um, shatters communities, in a sense, creates new bonds through shared fears. Um, so it has this interesting duality to it, the ways in which, for example, one can be very alone in a crowd uh, at the same t- time as the experience that one goes through um, bonds you with others. So these are themes that I pick up in the book, the idea of how fear is entangled with power, uh, the idea of fear shattering communities. 
communities, but also being fundamental to the construction of new communities. Shall we just begin with a, a, an obvious question, which is what you perceive fear primarily is? Uh, and for many, it is a, a biological reaction uh, driven by the amygdala in the first instance that is a key part of our survival instincts. You acknowledge it's a neurobiological emotion or experience, but for you, it is more learned. Could you elaborate? Well, it's certainly a biological phenomenon, and the sort of complex neurophysiological aspect of fear. Having said that, there's a lot of controversy still as to exactly uh, what pain, uh, what fear is, and how you know the brain it, it functions in terms of uh, brain physiology. But I'm interested in the cultural aspect of fear. That's to say, the fears that we acquire, that we're enculturated with. Um, and I think that opens up a space of thinking that if one learns to a certain extent fears um, or learns to fear, then it follows that we can unlearn how to fear or what we fear. Uh, and that opens up, I think, a much more optimistic view of what fear is in terms of changing our patterns of behavior in relation to, 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 to old fears. And it's very much um, the, the, the positive, hopeful aspect of the book, um, that understanding histories of fears also enables us in some sense to manage those historical fears that shape our present. Well, that might be a timely point to begin historically at the beginning um, with something like the Black Plague, because pandemics and the way they spread also drives how human fear spreads. And we've just had another example in recent years of a, of a pandemic. So let's, this is a more educated time, a more connected time, a medically more sophisticated time. Let's compare and contrast the role of fear in these different eras. Do you want to begin with the Black Plague? Yeah, so the, I, I, I begin in the black, uh, black with the Black Death because I'm interested in the, in the uh, psychological, economic, political, and social shocks that it produced, um, and the way that they played into shifts that then happen in the in the next two centuries with the formation of centralized states in Europe, um, and the ways in which fear uh, became embedded in a new structure of power. In other words, the management of fear in these centralized states became very important in this period of turmoil with the reformation the wars of religion and that's the moment that europe then started carving out its global you know imperial dominions exporting this politics of fear i argue so there are very specific contexts and reasons why i begin in the 14th century because in some sense my story is the exportation of european fears around the world um in terms of epidemics which is uh, and the fears that they produce I'm interested in the ways in which fears often that appear singular and in fact plural. That's to say, we fear a disease, but we also fear our security, economics, social breakdown, etc. And these fears become very, very entangled. And I think we saw that during the COVID pandemic, um, when the fear of the coronavirus merged into and became entangled with a host of other kinds of fears. Um, so it means that the management of fear is particularly difficult if fear it has this liquid quality, that it can move between different domains. And it's very, very hard in that sense to pin down. We saw examples of that where people's fear of a prolonged lockdown or people's fear of their business not surviving the most recent pandemic 
saw a, a rage and a fear against anybody who dared breach the rules, right? So this is the complication you're talking about. Some people may have been may have had a fear of getting sick and dying, and certainly the immunocompromised had a legitimate fear there. But for others, it was the fear of the loss, economic loss, or the fr- loss of freedom that enraged them. Exactly, and it's balancing those different kinds of fears and the way they play off against each other. Um, that it becomes very complicated in these crisis moments. The other aspect of it is the public health aspect, that public health has always relied to a certain extent on fear in order to change people's behaviours to stop the spread of a disease. Um, But, of course, too much fear then leads to apathy, paralysis, etc. So it's finding the balance between the sort of uses of fear uh, and the misuses of fear that becomes very important in these contexts. What the coronavirus pandemic also taught us is that people fatigue of fear, perhaps as they learn more or they just begin to realign their personal risk versus reward circumstance. Uh, And that is interesting because it raises the question of whether fear needs to be acute in the sense of risk to life um, or where it can break down and fail to work anymore. Now, this could be true of a dictatorship Mm. as much as it could be a a health authority, couldn't it? Yes, I think you've um, you've, you've pinpointed something very important. Um, In the book, I focus on moments of fear revolutions, war, pandemics. But I'm also interested in what you might call systemic fears. That's fears that inhere within systems. Slavery, um, you could say industrialization, produce fears that worked within the system. Um, I agree with you, and I think it's an important point that there is a tiring of fear. But if we go back to this idea of fear as liquid, um, one fear then mutates into another kind of fear. Um, maybe a financial crisis fear or a geopolitical fear. Um, So I'm not sure that fear dissipates in that sense. Um, It always inheres within our society. It just moves and objects change. Moves or is moved? Because whatever drives it, your thesis is it's a leading tool of and for power, the power of autocrats, the power of religious institutions, the power even of legitimate uh, institutions that we've elected. And uh, let's look at perhaps its role as a tool of power uh, from the perspective of the autocrats who have utilised it. Um, could you just could you pick up on that? Does it need to be demonstrated? Do there need to be demonstrated consequences for resisting power for it to be effective? I think power uses fear in a quite a performative way. Um, I take the example of Louis the Fourteenth. And this idea of stage power, you know, public executions, punishments, um, are play a very important part in the story of fear. But I think you've touched on an, something quite interesting, the ways in which there's a sort of centripetal and centrifugal aspect of fear. But fear um, is, in, in the end, very, very hard to control. And what we see in the, t- in, in the context of dictatorships or centralised power, is often the fear comes back to haunt the person or authority wielding that power. Stalin being um, a quite an interesting case, the sort of paranoia that begins to surround uh, dictators who wield power through fear. Um, so there's an interesting ways in which, um, as you point out, the fear can't be centrally managed 
ultimately successfully. It will always dissipate and confound uh, the authority using it. The power also of religious institutions is a fascinating one. And and, and perhaps we should um, digress for a moment and go to another matter that you deal with very early on in the book. And and this is just fascinating. One of the highest selling books of all time was a book about witches published in 1486. uh, Reportedly, Hammer of Witches, as it is in English, as it translates, sold more copies over the next two centuries than any other book other than the Bible. Now, this fear of women and women as witches. What drove this specific fear? It seems to recur throughout history, but what drove this specific fear and the behaviour that resulted, Robert? Well, so I look at uh, the, the witch scares that happened um, you know, during the post-Reformation war, wars of religion in, in Europe. And I think that the, there are very local stories here, so it's 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 dangerous to generalise too much. But I think that one can say that uh, there are two aspects of this that I would point out. One is the ways in which the success in hunting down and putting witches on trial became an index of a kind of power. That the more successful you were in rooting out this evil, the more you demonstrate your your authority. So there's a sort of political dimension to this, but often. Also, we're looking at a, a world where uh, the Christendom is is, is fragmenting, uh, and there are different sort of religious uh, uh, authorities contest, contesting for for power. And which witchcraft and the hunt for witches exists within this contested domain of spirituality, if you like, and the power that's linked to it. It's perseverance is quite extraordinary, isn't it? And I don't know whether that's because it was a time and place where in the absence of science or uh, other answers, people just wanted someone to blame and a way of perhaps protecting uh, protecting themselves in the, in, the, in the ignorance of knowing the true causes of things. Yes, I think that fear is often linked to anothering, to the stigmatisation of some object personal or people who are viewed as responsible in some way for the threat that causes the fear. And so this fear and um, and and stigmatization is a very important theme in the book. And obviously we can see it being, you know, enacted in, in the world we live in today in all kinds of ways. And it is a problem that lies at the heart, going back to um, public health and pandemics, in the heart of public health messaging. That is, uh, when you target a high-risk group, um, you also open up fears that that group will itself be the object of, uh, you know, punitive measures or, or stigmatisation. So there's a balance to be drawn. In the ways in which we me- the HIV exactly AIDS that- epidemic would be a classic example. Exactly. That's a classic example where you want to reach out to a particular group, but in so doing, you open up uh, the possibility that this group will be stigmatized. So fear, othering, and stigmatization. I think that when we think about witches, um, that's an important aspect of the story. Just staying with politics for a moment, we were saying that fear uh, can be used as a crucial tool for getting cooperation, and you need tremendous cooperation if you're going to stop a virus spreading before you have um, before you have um, an, an antidote to it or a, a vaccine for it, right? Uh, so it can enhance cooperation, and indeed in the early stages of the epidemic, there was a tremendous sense of community, we're all in this together, 
And then the personal fears, as you say, the migration of the fear to what this means for me personally, financially, economically, uh, begins to impact on that. But can we talk also about um, some other political examples? You cite the example of Brexit and the campaigners to leave Europe uh, accusing the Remain side of fear-mongering. And again... When we have these big political questions and decisions, does each side embrace people's fear of losing as a means of boosting their numbers? I think that is right. And I think particularly today where we're seeing a very uh, fear-centred politics. I mean, I'm based at the moment in the in the US, and that's certainly true in the, in the run-up to the presidential elections. Um, Going back to what you were saying about fear, I think it's an important motivator. So fear is a motivator. It focuses um, attention on something. There's an, there's an argument that would go that from the middle of the 20th century, part during the Cold War, partly as a result of what was happening, the, the Holocaust, Stalin, nuclear fears, politics began, became quite defensive. In other words, um, it became more about preventing the encroachment of totalitarianism, preserving and protecting individual rights. And fear became an important tool in that protection. And so it could be argued that we've sort of inherited this Cold War approach to fear as an important tool in protecting uh, rights to the extent that we're less about espousing values and more about trying to protect them through fear. So fear has entered into the heart of our politics and it's 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 less an aspirational espousal of positive value as it is about fear of something happening that in some sense takes things away from us. And there's a virality to it in different ways. I'm not sure if that's a word. Um, because, and here you are as a, as a student of pandemics. But what we now have uh, with not only media but with social media and our extraordinary interconnectedness is that a fear that might spread through an isolated community over why all the pigs had died is now shared globally and shared sometimes with about as much factual information as those communities and their, and their dead pigs or their dead crops. Uh, we, we, the interconnectedness has brought a speed of transmission of fear, whether it's of a pandemic or whether it's of a run on the banks, on a bigger scale than we've seen before, Robert. Yes, uh, technology plays a very big role in the history of fear. So one could go back to the invention of the printed book. One could even go further to the invention of written language, printed book, telegraph, wireless, um, you know, radio, telephone, TV, and internet. And there's a, an ambiguity within these technologies. That's to say that they become conduits, new conduits for fear, but also they become ways of managing fear. The telegraph being a very interesting example, it was seen as an important tool of governance. In other words, the access to information ahead of time in speedy information would enable um, you know, rulers to more effectively rule their populations. But it soon became apparent that they could be, these technologies could be subverted, sabotaged, and used in in revolutionary ways. So there's always this ambiguity of uh, technology being uh, a a way of sort of building bridges and also a way of sort of fragmenting. And I think we're seeing that definitely speeded up with internet technologies and coalescing around these technologies, lots of fears about human autonomy, privacy, misinformation, disinformation, etc. 
What is a way in which this mass sharing of fear, fear could actually be used constructively? And here we are with a, uh, you write about eco-panic in, in your book, but whether it's panic or otherwise, we are facing a, a, a universal challenge with climate change that is going to require a massive reconstruction of our built infrastructure and our, uh, and our, and our lives and societies uh, in the not-too-distant future. Is there a way by which a fear that is genuine, that is based on facts and evidence, and that is presented alongside solutions can motivate? Do we have examples from history, Robert? I think fear can motivate. And in fact, if one an example would be the social reforms in the 19th century that are often thought of as humanitarian, have been driven by humanitarian impulses. But one could say that fear played an important role in them. For example, fear of the poor in big, growing urban centres, fear of disease, um, emanating from these poor areas that might affect the wealthy. Um, All of these were important catalysts uh, for the big social reforms that we see in the 19th century. So without being cynical, we can say that fear is a motivator. And I think there are all sorts of ways from climate change to some of the big social issues of inequality that we're seeing around the world, where fear can be motivating in the sense that it alerts us to the threat that if we do not tackle these things, uh, the the consequences will be pretty major. So there is always going to be a balance. Too much fear, not enough fear. And that's a negotiation that will always happen. There will never be a constant ideal fear. Um, But we need the structures within which, as you were saying, uh, to have trust, to have information that we can count on. So I think there are a lot of measures that we can take to ensure that um, the balance is kept, if you like, um, and that we have what I call benevolent fear. Robert, thank you very much. Robert Peckham, Fear, an Alternative History of the World, is his book, published by Profile Book 